And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Admiral Bill McRaven is a legend in military lore and in the annals of recent American history a swashbuckling Navy SEAL for 37 years. He led the U.S. Special Operations Command and in that role directed such sensitive missions as the raid that killed Osama bin Laden and the one that saved Captain Phillips from Somali pirates. He chronicled his extraordinary life and career in a book called Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations that came out this year. He also made news by taking on President Trump over the president's assault on the intelligence community. And he had plenty to say when we sat down last week in Austin, Texas, to talk about both his life and the state of our country. So good to see you. Good to be here. I have uh, very strong uh, recollections of my conversations with President Obama about the service that you performed for the country when he was president, and uh, he he was effusive uh, about that. So it's really great to sit with you, and it's great to sit with you because this is a podcast that really is about people's stories, and your story is is you could not make it up. It is uh, so remarkable. Uh, and much of it took place right here in Texas. We're in Austin, Texas uh, right now. Uh, you, you've written a book called uh, Sea Stories, uh, My Life in Special Operations. That's really a, uh, an autobiography that's in epics, right. in, 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 in stories. Um, tell me about where your story began, about the McRavens and, and your dad and your mom and— yeah, well, I grew up uh, not too far from here, down in San Antonio, uh, Texas. Now, I was born in Pinehurst, when my father was stationed there at uh, Pope Air Force Base. Um, but, you know, as you point out, this is, uh, you know, some people want to call this a memoir. And I guess in some respects it is a memoir. I mean, I, I tell the stories of the, the bin Laden raid and the, the rescue of Captain Phillips and the capture of Saddam Hussein. But really what I hope people take away from the book is that it's really about the great soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and civilians that I worked with over those 37 years, and really their impact uh, on, on world affairs and on the success of our, our, of our fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, just kind of seen through my eyes. Uh, and they are separate, you know, 18 separate stories, so you don't have to start at the beginning. You can, I think, pop in anywhere, so, uh, yeah. but, but, but fun to write. But the... Uh, but- what was really vivid was your portrait of uh, of your dad, who himself, as you point out, was a, a career military. Right. So the book starts off in, in 1960. Yeah. Uh, my father was stationed in uh, France at the time at the Supreme Headquarters uh, Allied Powers Europe shape. Uh, and we lived in a town called Fontainebleau, not too far from Paris. And, uh, and I tell the readers about kind of growing up listening to my father and his Fighter you pilot talk buddies. about yeah. spying on their, <laughs> right. their, their so get-togethers in the officers' club. They would always go to the officers' club uh, on a Friday night. And uh, again, this this was the World War II generation. So you think about it, kind of the greatest generation. Uh, these men and women grew up uh, as children of World War I, children of the Great Depression. All the men went off and fought in World War II. So they had a lot of stories to tell. And, and growing up as a young boy, I would kind of sit at their knee and listen to them talk about these stories. And the stories were always, you know, I thought kind of, you know, inspiring. They talked about heroism and bravery and courage and sacrifice. 
sometimes a little unbelievable, as stories tend to get. Um, <laughs> but I remember, you know, one point in time later on in my life, and my father said to me, Bill, life is all how you remember it. And so, as I tell the reader, this is kind of how I remember my life, uh, the 18 stories in this book. Your dad um, uh, was a, a great athlete. He was. Uh, used to race horse. He used to race, <laughs> not race horses, race against horses. That's right. Uh, and uh, obviously a, a big uh, personality and entered the military, as many did, uh, in World War II. He and did. He was playing professional football for the Cleveland Rams. Back in, uh, it went from 1938 to about 1940. And uh, and I think they were getting paid $120 a week. And Dad used to get an additional $10 for doing Wheaties radio commercials. Uh, so he was making pretty good <laughs> money. Did he have his, a voice as good as yours? Oh, I don't know about that. But uh, <laughs> it, it was it was good money at the time. And uh, But but kind of uh, in the 1940s, I think they saw the storm clouds brewing. And as Dad tells me, uh, he and four of his buddies decided to leave Cleveland and head to uh, California where they signed up for the Army Air Corps, and then Dad went on and uh, you know, fought throughout uh, World War II and uh, time in Korea, and then uh, finally retired in 1967. We should not cheat his story, though. I mean, he, he, he had some pretty close-in uh, engagements in, in World War II. He, he, threw, he flew a, a, a British Spitfire he uh, planes. He was uh, in North Africa and Sicily and Italy. He was there for Normandy. Right. What did he tell you about that? Yeah, you know, he, uh, as I think with a lot of that generation, uh, they really downplayed their efforts in the war. I think they understood that, uh, you know, that there was a, a tremendous amount of sacrifice that occurred from all the young, uh, you know, troops that were out there. So rarely did he talk about his wartime events as though they were something, you know, great to be lauded. He, he would talk about, again, the other people that he served with. Uh, so interestingly enough, while I say he was a great storyteller, they were almost more about other people. Uh, I remember one time, though, we were in uh, France as, as I, that same time during 1960, mm -hmm. and there was a, a Frenchman from Paris that uh, Dad would uh, visit with occasionally. And really, the Frenchman told me about uh, Dad getting shot down during the war. And, and later on, when I kind of questioned Dad, he said, yeah, I was a little too chicken to bail out of his Spitfire. So he landed the Spitfire in France, uh, got picked up by the French resistance, of which this uh, Frenchman was kind of leading the resistance, spent a couple days in France, and they managed to get him back over to, uh, to England. Uh, again, Dad didn't talk a lot about that time, uh, but, uh, but you knew, certainly didn't talk to me about it. I think uh, amongst his buddies, again, they talked about the war effort, but in talking to me, it was really all about the other people he served with. You... Um it would, you you obviously you, you you know as you said you start this uh, book by talking about being a young man, kind of uh, spying on right. the, the conversations um, and these stories that you mentioned that uh, sometimes embellish sometimes not. Uh, did you know from an early age that this was the this was the career that you were going to pursue? I don't know how early I, I determined that, but what I enjoyed was I really enjoyed being around uh, the folks in the Air Force, in this case, in the Army in, in San Antonio. I liked the camaraderie that I saw amongst uh, my father and, and my mother had, had great friends, uh, military spouses uh, that uh, were, were lifelong friends. And so the camaraderie, the sense of you know, as tried as it may sound, the sense of duty, honor, and country. Uh, they lived it. They believed in it. They weren't uh, naive to the problems in America. 
but they felt that uh, you know America was worth fighting and, and dying for. And so being raised in that environment, I thought I saw that as kind of a noble undertaking. So when the time came, uh, I knew I wanted to, to go into the military and kind of continue on in, in that thing. And what did your did your parents encourage that? You know, they they didn't uh, push me into it. Uh, I th- they let me make up my own mind. Now, having said that, uh, when I was in high school and, and looking at uh, opportunities to go to college, again, my father was at that time a, a retired uh, Air Force colonel. I didn't make a whole lot of money. Uh, so he became a labor negotiator. He, did. he became a labor negotiator in the city of San Antonio, loved that job, and spent time with what was called uh, Model Cities in San Antonio, which yeah. was uh, refurbishing the downtown. But uh, So they were looking at some sort of scholarship, and my mother had hoped my dad wanted me to go to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I was inclined towards the Navy because I had been scuba diving since I was about 13 and wanted to spend time around the water. So my mom tried to get me uh, to, to go to the Naval Academy, but candidly, my, my grades were not good enough. My SAT score was not good enough. But fortunately, I was able to get a, an ROTC scholarship uh, here to the University of Texas at Austin. And, uh, and that was, a, again, a very smooth transition. I love my time here at UT. Was there um, – it's interesting. You had one reference uh, – to uh, I and uh, correct me uh, if I'm getting these facts wrong, but uh, your mom passed away, uh, and you were being shipped out uh, right around that time. And you wrote something that really touched me about your interaction with your dad as you left, yeah. and you said uh, that uh, you know he he extended his hand. And then he gave you a hug, right. and that he, that that was really unusual. Well, you know th- that generation, uh, that World War II generation, they were not huggers. At least the the military men were not huggers, and uh, and so after my mother passed away in San Antonio, uh, my dad didn't know, but I was uh, we were on a classified mission. I had actually had to come back from the classified mission, uh, do my mother's funeral, and then head right back uh, out uh, preparing for the mission. Dad knew something was up. But as we were you know, kind of heading out, uh, standing there at the airport in San Antonio, uh, my dad went to give you know our usual manly handshake, and, and instead we hugged. And I said, you know, from then on, I, I decided I was going to be a hugger because uh, that was an important moment in my life. Let me ask a presumptuous uh, question uh, that may um, slap over into psychobabble. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, your dad was, you know, there, the way you write about him, uh, there was a sort of larger-than-life quality right. to his his achievements and to his heroism and uh, understated heroism and so right. on. Um, how much how much did you feel? I know you were a runner right. as well. He was a runner. He was he was a champion sprinter. You you ran distance. Um, how much was there a competition? With that, how much did you feel you needed to live up to his? Uh... Yeah, absolutely none at all. Uh, my dad was incredibly humble. In fact, I didn't know about a lot of his athletic achievements until I was in high school, and I happened to stumble on an old scrapbook. And you know, I mean, my dad probably when I was in high school was in his late fifties or something, and you know, I just assumed he was an old man. I mean, I, I was proud of his military service, but I I find this scrapbook and I open it up, and it goes all the way back to Portageville High. Uh, where he was a star, uh, football, basketball, and everything, baseball, yes. everything, yeah. and uh, and then he was a Hall of Famer at, uh, at Murray State, and then went on to play in the Cle- in the national, uh, the football league back yeah. at the time. I was stunned by this because Dad had never really talked about his uh, his athletic achievements. 
my dad was always very understated, always very humble, uh, yeah. just a, a wonderful father. And I think it never pressured me. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I think he went out of his way uh, not to pressure me because I was not the athlete that he was, although I was a pretty good athlete. Um, he encouraged me to, to do what I wanted to do and kind of follow my own dreams. Uh, and it was a, again, and I will also offer my mother, who was a kind of an East Texas uh, school teacher, uh, equally, you know, strong uh, in the right sense. Uh, she was this kind of very gracious and, and graceful Southern lady, uh, although she made sure that I made my bed every morning and did the sort of things. Yeah, that which, she which was great because it gave you the title of a very successful, <laughs> uh, successful book. One of the stories uh, in your book is about uh, a coach who gave you encouragement, but it was obviously it was more, the story is more important than that because it was about how you broke uh, a record, I guess for the mile, right, high school uh, mile, and uh, how you you had failed and you know could have been discouraged, and um, this coach uh, called you a- out of the blue and told you you can do this, go after it, and he pushed you. Uh, and you and you did it, and you and you and you were uh, you pushed your physic yourself to your physical limits uh, to get this done, and you know it seemed like a prelude to becoming a Navy SEAL. Right. Yeah, the the reason I put that story in there, and frankly, I'm often asked what's my favorite story in the book, and I think people are surprised when I tell them that that is my favorite story, and the reason it's my favorite story is because. You know, not everybody in the world is going to get a chance to, to go on a raid to get bin Laden or, or rescue Captain Phillips or get Saddam Hussein. But the point of that story is that coach called me. And again, I had not had a, a close relationship with him for a couple of years. Uh, I didn't even know he knew who I was. And he calls me at home the night before my last race. Uh, and again, I was just stunned by this. And he encourages me. And, and that inspiration uh, carried me through the day uh, on the race the next day, and I broke the school record. Now, the fact of the matter is, nobody cared about that school record but me. But it, it taught me that if I could break that school record, then I could go on to, to be a Navy SEAL because I, I had set that goal and I had achieved that goal, and I realized that I had the physical toughness because the coach had encouraged me to go out and run hard. And that coach, Coach Jerry Turnbow, uh, who is, uh, he and I have a, a great relationship today, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that everybody can do. Everybody can encourage some young man or woman to go do something, and that will fundamentally change their life. And as I've told Coach Turnbow a couple of times, that phone call put me on the path to be a Navy SEAL. And when you think about that path, and over the course of my career, the folks that I have hopefully positively influenced, well, a lot of that is a result of, uh, of that one phone call from Coach Turnbow. You know, you talk about the SEAL training, um, and Coronado, and I knew something about this. Mark Lippert, who was right. a uh, uh, had various national security roles in the Obama administration, trained with the SEALs. I know Mark well, and uh, he described some of it. Um, which, and I thought he was embellishing, but apparently not. <laughs> but you read that, and you think, man, if if you treated prisoners the way the SEALs <laughs> are treated, you'd violate the Geneva strictures and, 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 you know, all kinds of international law. It is an ordeal. It is an ordeal. Uh, but recognize that everybody volunteers to be a Navy SEAL. And I think you know going into it that this is going to be, you know, some of the toughest military training in the world. 
And, uh, and the expectation, certainly when I went through in 1977, all of my instructors were Vietnam veterans. Uh, and they wanted to make sure that the, the guys coming through uh, were going to meet the standard of excellence, both the physical standard, the mental standard, uh, the toughness, the mental toughness that they expected, uh, because they didn't know whether or not we were going to be heading back into conflict soon. Uh, so, yeah, they, uh, it, it was trying. But, of course, I also tell people I was young. You know, I was 22, and when you're 22, you, you feel a little bit invincible. Uh, I was pretty uh, physically fit. Uh, but, yeah, it, it was uh, six months of, uh, of being cold, wet, and miserable every day, of being, being harassed every day. And, uh, and you learn uh, that the, the only way to get through is to tell yourself, I'm just not going to quit. I'm often asked by, you know, young potential SEALs, you know, what's the, the secret to training? They say, you know, should I run more? Should I swim more? So I said, no, it's easy. You just don't quit. Yeah, and they they and they they gave you lots of encouragement to quit. <laughs> One of the games that were played with the seals was that they'd expose you to like extraordinary uh, privations and right. and and really brutal physical challenges, and they they encourage you to quit. If just five guys quit, right. uh, you know you, we can stop. So right now. we have a special week. So it's uh, six months long. In the first uh, 10 weeks, the first phase of training, we have what's called Hell Week. And Hell Week, uh, when I went through, was six days long. And, and within Hell Week, if that's not bad enough, they have uh, generally on Wednesday, you go down to the Mud Flats, which was this muddy slough of water that ran off from Tijuana and San Diego. And, you know, the mud is cold and wet and miserable, and you stay in the mud a lot. And this is really what breaks a lot of guys. And to your point, uh, you know, you get down there and they know that when the, the trainees are in the mud, that, uh, that this is the most exhausting period of time they're going to have probably in all of SEAL training. And so they try to pit the class against each other. You know, everybody can come out of the mud, get warm by the fire, if only five guys quit. And so you have to stay together as a class. You have to bond in a way that is meaningful. And if you don't do that, then the class falls apart. They want to find out who's tough enough to make it through hell week, make it through that period of time in the mud flats. And yeah, it, it's pretty excruciating. But then you compare all the rest of your career to whether or not you were as miserable as you were during Hell Week. Yeah, I guess uh, like a third of the people who started. Uh... So we started with 110. I, I think we actually started with more than that. But the records show 110 and we graduated with 33. Yeah, yeah. Um, early in your career, uh, you actually had a setback in that uh, you uh, had been deployed to the Philippines. You were uh, a junior officer. You were assigned to form SEAL Team 6, which became famous uh, in the future, and you would have something uh, to do with it. But uh, you ran afoul of your, uh, your commander, uh, uh, and you were, you were relieved of your command. What, ha what happened? Well, so I got there actually about a year after the command uh, stood up. And, uh, and in the year that I was there, yeah, eventually uh, the commanding officer fired me, relieved me of my position. And of course, the, the it, words were the leader, their leadership styles clash. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, I, I just think the, the commanding officer had kind of a different view of uh, what his expectations of my leadership would be. Uh, and, and he was commanding officer. So he didn't like my style. I was probably a little too buttoned up for him. Uh, I had a little bit. Uh, stronger belief about good order and discipline and, and what the guys needed to do to kind of stay on the, the right track. Uh, but at the time, I think he was trying to create a culture, and maybe rightfully so, of, uh, of folks that were a little bit more bold and cavalier in how they approach things. Um, so, you know, we came to a crossroads, and uh, he didn't think I was right to be on the team, and, and I got fired, basically. Uh, now, the Asked you to do things that you thought were improper? 
I thought were improper at the time um, and, and probably, again, not conducive to building the kind of uh, SEAL team that I thought we needed to build. Now, again, I was a young lieutenant. He was a Navy commander, considerably senior to me, uh, considerably more experienced. He was a Vietnam veteran uh, and a good guy. I, I, don't, uh, I don't necessarily fault him for the decision there. Um, but, you know, when you get fired, uh, that's never a good thing. When you get fired in the Navy, it's particularly bad. And when you get fired in the SEAL teams, it's really bad because it's such a small group. The point I tried to make in the book is, uh, you know, I got fired and, uh, and, and of course, I uh, had been married for a while at that point in time. And it, I thought, well, I've got no career left. And my wife came to me and she said, look, you've never quit at anything in your life. And now's not the time to start. And so I kind of pushed through that rough period in my life and, uh, and went on and things turned out okay. What did you learn from that? Well, yeah, I learned that, uh, you know, one, you are going to have rough periods in your life. Uh, we're all going to have rough periods in our life. And I talk about, uh, in a previous book, about never ringing the bell. So in SEAL training, the way to quit is you have this brass bell, and all you have to do is ring the bell three times, and that's it. You're out. You quit. It's easy to quit. Um, it, it is easy to find excuses not to press on, particularly when you're trying to do something you really want to do that is challenging. And, uh, and so you have to steel yourself for these tough moments. And when those tough moments come, you have to get through them somehow and generally, there's light at the other end of the tunnel. So I tell folks, look, unless you're in an abusive relationship or you have abusive behavior, if you're following your dream, if you're trying to do something you really want to do, then don't ever ring that bell. You went off uh, onto the uh, Naval Postgraduate School, and you actually uh, uh, you sort of wrote the book on uh, on special ops and 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 the use of. Uh, of these forces, 612 pages. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. What, what, tell me about the fundamental principles that you... So the, the fundamental principle was, uh, you know, when you go through the Naval Postgraduate School, you, you kind of start with uh, basic military strategy 101, and you have to read Carl von Clausewitz's book on war. And it really is kind of considered the, the Bible, if you will, for military warfare. And Clausewitz says, look, uh, that the defense is inherently stronger than the offense. Because the defense only has to preserve and protect, while the offense has to impose its will upon the enemy. So in order for the offense to be uh, successful against the stronger defense, you have to have mass and maneuver. So you have to have a lot of troops, and, and you have to be able to maneuver on the enemy. So it, it raised the question, then, if that is the case, why are special operations successful? When we are generally a smaller force going against a, a heavily armed, uh, heavily protected, bunkered force in many cases, why are we successful? So the book set out to find out you know, what, what is different about this. What are the principles of special operation that are fundamentally different than the principles of conventional warfare? And so uh, I, I did eight case studies, actually did 10 of them. But I remember in particular, I was talking to a German officer who had been on the raid on a Benamale. Well, one of the very early raids, German paratroopers went into this fortress. There were a couple hundred German paratroopers against 1,200 Belgian soldiers in one of the largest forts of its time. And they completed the mission in about 25 minutes. Hmm. So as I am talking to him in his home in Germany, he says to me, well, you're trying to develop a theory here, right? And I hadn't thought about it being a theory, but I realized he was right. I was trying to figure out why are special operations successful. That model... Uh, the special operations model, I subsequently went on to use almost every single day in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the theory proved out over time. Not only there, but in the, the, the planning of the raid that ultimately uh, yielded bin Laden. Absolutely. I mean, I took the, 
the, the book I had written, I sat down with a ground force commander and I said, look, we need to figure out where our point of vulnerability is. You know, where do we achieve relative superiority? What is our timeline? I followed the model that, uh, that I had I'd built 20 years earlier. You, um, one of the, uh, um, gripping stories here and hard to read in some ways is, uh, your own, your own injury, which happened during a training, uh, exercise, uh, where you parachuted, you were leading a, a group, and you right. were the last guy out, and you parachuted because the seals they need to come by air or by sea. Right. They dive, they they parachute, um, but it but this one didn't go right. Yeah, it didn't go right at all. So, uh, to your point, it was just a routine parachute jump. So we had. Uh, Launched out of North Island Naval Air Station on a C-130. Went up to about 13,000 feet. It was one of these kind of beautiful days in San Diego. Not a cloud in the sky. We jumped out, and uh, and there were a couple of guys below me. My responsibility as the, as the jumper above is to look out for them. But frankly, I wasn't paying attention. Guy got underneath me. He opened his parachute. So in relative terms, I'm moving at 120 miles an hour, and he stopped. Uh, I hit his parachute, kind of spun out of control, pull my ripcord. Uh, again, I probably should have gotten stable first. I pull my ripcord. Pilot chute wraps around one leg, riser wraps around the other. So I'm entangled in my parachute, you know, falling towards the earth, thinking to myself, yeah, this doesn't, this doesn't look too good. The good news is the is parachute that what, opened. Is yeah. that, that isn't exactly what you said, is yeah, it? <laughs> but, uh, but the good news was the parachute opened. The bad news is when the parachute opens, it blossoms. And one leg went one way and one leg went the other, and it basically snapped me in two, broke my pelvis by about five inches, ripped the muscles out of my stomach, my back, and uh, kind of fractured my back. And I landed a couple miles from the drop zone. Now, I'm quick to point out, uh, I think, in the story that you know my injuries and that parachute drop kind of pale in comparison to what I've seen from these young men and women that, are, that were hit in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the lesson of the, the story about the parachute drop is that you know, it took a whole lot of people to kind of get me back on my feet. My wife became my nurse. Uh, Admiral Eric Olson, who was my boss, took care of me, kept me in the Navy. My colleagues came by and uh, you know, boosted my morale, kind of helped me through it. Um, and so I don't it was, care. it was an ordeal that, sure. that, that recovery, it was an absolute ordeal. But, uh, the point I make is, look, I, I don't care whether you're the biggest, toughest, strongest, smartest seal around, you're going to need a lot of help uh, getting through life. And I think this is true of anybody, uh, you know, have as many friends as you can make as many colleagues as you can, you know, help, uh, help strangers and they will help you. Um, that to me was the lesson of my parachute jump. You were still recovering, uh, lying in bed on September 11th right. of uh, 2001, and you saw these airplanes uh, hit the World Trade Center towers. Uh, did you, as you were uh, watching this, did it occur to you that uh, uh, special ops was now uh, going to be a, a more important element of, of, of conflict? What occurred to me was that everything had changed. And in fact, I remember calling my boys uh, and telling them, look, life's never going to be the same from here on out. I mean, this is uh, an attack on American soil. And I didn't know which direction it would go, but I knew things uh, were going to get challenging for us as a nation. But it didn't take me long. Probably within the next uh, week or so, we began to realize that uh, special operations would be a key component in this. And of course, uh, some of the first forces into Afghanistan were special operations forces, along with our great CIA counterparts. And for the last uh, 18 years, uh, we've been a very, very important part uh, of this conflict. Um, 
You know, I want to ask you about uh, the the one the as you read. I, I loved your book. The the, the criticism of it that uh, you hear uh, is that you really um, you there is a you glorify the heroism of people who uh, are involved, and there's no question about that. But um, but you guys, I mean, I was around you know, for some of this, um, you know, your, your assignment often is to go and kill people. Uh, I, and I presume you've done some of that yourself. Um, what is, do you become desensitized to that? How do you, you know, I understand that the principle is you take the lives of people who are trying to take the lives of others, but you're still killing people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it is a challenge. You know, you, you have to take warfare seriously. If the nation has decided to go to war, then we better go to war to win. And unfortunately, in warfare, it's going to mean killing the enemy. And of course, you don't always get it right. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit, we didn't always get it right. You know, sometimes in the nature of particularly an insurgency, you're striking a, a target that you think is only bad guys, and it turns out that there are some innocent civilians in there. And that is a, it's a terrible thing, and that weighs on you tremendously. Um, but you hope what you are doing, and I know the warrior culture hopes that what we are doing is in the long run, we are protecting what is good and honorable and noble and the values of this country. If we're not doing that, then it makes fighting uh, these wars that much more difficult. If we feel we're not the good guys, then the burden these young soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and civilians that, that were with us, the burden they will bring back when the war is over uh, will be unimaginable. I think when you look at World War II, and again, it's not that the veterans coming back from World War II didn't have issues as well, but they knew they were fighting the Nazis. Uh, and, and this gave them, I think, the internal moral strength yeah. to, to push forward. That, that one was not ambiguous. That one was not ambiguous. Uh, and these wars, of course, have been a little bit ambiguous. But you go in saying, look, I, I have an obligation. You raise your hand and say, you know, I support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And when the commander-in-chief and the people of the country send you to war, they don't want you to do it half-baked. Uh, they want you to get in there, defeat the enemy, and get out as quickly as possible. Obviously, that hasn't hadn't worked out in Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly not in Afghanistan. Um, but you can't go in half-hearted. Yeah, that's tough. It's not for everybody. That's why we kind of today have a, a volunteer military. And it weighs on these guys every single day because they are husbands, they are brothers, they are fathers, they are mothers. We have women that are with us, uh, you know, and, and daughters and sisters. Uh, so it's challenging. War, war changes you no matter who you are. You, um, you were in Iraq uh, at the, from almost the very beginning. I want to get back to your NSC uh, you did two two years in the White House, and I'm going to get back to that in a second. But since we're on this subject, you were in Iraq. In fact, you were you oversaw the operation that captured Saddam Hussein. Um, I want to ask you one thing about that, which is you spent weeks around him. Uh, you wrote that you you you. I mean, there was a lot of psychological positioning uh, both ways, I guess, but. Um, uh, what what was your what was your what was your strategy in dealing with him? And what was your impression of him? So uh, we captured Saddam uh, in December of two thousand and three, and and the great Army Special Operations guys who were working for me under Lieutenant Colonel Bill Coltrip uh, kind of led that operation. 
But I held on to him for, for 30 days. And, of course, we had an obligation under the laws of uh, the, the rules of engagement, laws of armed conflict. We took good care of Saddam. But on day one, uh, or maybe day two, I guess, when uh, Ambassador Bremer brought some of the Iraqis over to meet with Saddam, it was clear that Saddam was still pompous and arrogant. Uh, I'm sure these, he, these were these were leaders of the Iraqi uh, resistance. Correct. Uh, so you know, again, Iraq had fallen. These were going to be the new leaders of the Iraqi government, and they come into the room and they are yelling and they are spitting at Saddam and they are calling him names. And he's sitting on this cot in the orange jumpsuit, and he is is uh, kind of motioning to them, hey, "Take a seat, boys. I still got this." You know. Mm-hmm. And they did. You could tell they were terrified of him. They were yelling at him like the schoolyard bully, but they weren't getting close. Um, and he was, again, he had this this uh, sense of arrogance about Swagger. him. Swagger. It was just uh, stunning, to be honest with you. So uh, I told Ambassador Bremer after that, no, there were no, not going to be any visitors. So for the next 30 days, uh, we we kept him not in isolation. I, I, he had a very nice, you know, as nice a room as any of my soldiers did. But I had a, a, a medic. And, uh, and a security guard in there 24 hours a day just to make sure he didn't harm himself. And frankly, he was an old man and he had some medical issues. But an interesting thing happened as time went on. You know, over the course of the, the days and the weeks when he no longer had his palaces and he no longer had his generals and he no longer had his handmaidens, he really just became a pathetic old man. Uh, and I tell folks, if you contrast that with a guy like Nelson Mandela, who almost 30 years uh, incarcerated, and he comes out as strong, maybe stronger, because Mandela had this great character, this great sense of personal integrity, uh, and he was able to last over this uh, incredible period of time. Years, yeah. yeah. And Saddam, within a couple of weeks, reverts to just the pathetic old guy he is because he was evil on the inside. He was nothing but a bully. And, and those traits came out very quickly. That was what, to me, was pretty stunning, was how quickly the man that had been the dictator of Iraq yeah, just became a shell of himself. So one of the things that you were, you had interrogators who were coming in and right. dealing with him, one of the things they were trying to ascertain is where, was these, where were these uh, weapons of mass destruction that were the genesis uh, or the, the rationale for the attack on uh, Iraq. They never were found. Right. He never, uh, and, and one has to conclude that they weren't there. Right. Um, we're, we're now, uh, you know, we're back in Iraq 18 years later or 17 years later. Um, what has the cost been, you know, beyond the $3 trillion right. of these wars and the loss of thousands of men? And, and do you, looking back, believe that it was uh, the right decision. Yeah, I think you know time will tell, uh, and and I know that sounds like a little bit of a cop out, but as I have kind of thought through this, because you do think through it, and the soldiers on the ground uh, think through it. Uh, I, I tell the story every once in a while. Uh, late in 2010, in the summer of 2010, President Obama had made the decision that we were pulling out of Iraq in January of 2011. So we only only had about five or six months left, and I was down in Baghdad. And my guys were still going out every night uh, chasing al-Qaeda in Iraq, trying to stop uh, vehicle-borne IEDs, trying to stop these mass murders in the, uh, in the bazaars. And uh, one of the senior chiefs uh, raises his hand and said, Sir, what are we doing? Why are we still going out every night risking our lives you know, mm-hmm. for – we're pulling out of here in five months. 
And again, I I had thought about the same thing. And uh, and the only thing I could tell him at the time was, look, we don't know uh, what our actions, the cascading effect our actions will have. If we go out tonight and stop a vehicle-borne IED from killing 100 people in a market in Baghdad, we don't know whether or not one of those people that was saved will not go on to cure cancer, will not go on to find us renewable energy, will not go on to be the next Iraq uh, president of Iraq. So you got to do your job. The American people have sent us here to do our job. Um, And yes, we can look back on it retrospectively and ask whether or not it was the right thing to do. But in the moment, if you begin to question the decisions too hard, it will be difficult to do your job. Yeah, it would be. And I understand that from a military standpoint. But you're also, you have a kind of scholarly uh, uh, view of things. You know, the President Obama, when he was not even a U.S. senator but was running for the U.S. Senate, uh, made a speech when the Senate was voting on the on the uh, authorization of military force, and he said that he feared an engagement of undetermined length, undetermined cost, sure. and undetermined consequences that would uh, unleash sectarian warfare in Iraq uh, and make America more of a focus of terrorism. All those things ended up happening, did they not? They did, yeah. Uh, again, so I, I can't deny, uh, and I, not my intent to, uh, to deny or, or debate what has happened on, on the battlefield and what has happened around the world. Uh, again, uh, you know, personally, uh, I wish we hadn't uh, gone to war in Iraq, candidly. Uh, but when you're sent there to do the job, yeah, back sure, to the, I understood. The, the warrior culture. But I also think that uh, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, 50 years from now, if you, if you don't have a Saddam Hussein there and you begin to build a stable Iraq and the Kurds are, are, have become a, a great and, and functioning society and the Iraqis have become strong, then will we look back at it differently? I don't know. Um, We're going to have to have another podcast in 50 years. <laughs> yeah, and, I think so. And uh, talk about it. But, you know, we went into Afghanistan for, I think, all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And we're still there in Afghanistan. So uh, do, you think we, do you think President Obama made a mistake by withdrawing all the troops from Iraq? I don't think he made a mistake at the time. I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, now, all the troops, I do think it would have been helpful to leave some troops in there, uh, just as I think it's important that we continue to have a presence in Afghanistan. I realize that it would have cost more lives if we left troops in, in Iraq. But, of course, by pulling troops out of Iraq, uh, you saw the rise of ISIS. Could we have prevented that? I don't know. Um, again, it, it's easy to sit here in, in kind of modern times and second-guess a lot of these decisions. Um, but, uh, but at the time, I didn't disagree with the president. Uh, I, I thought it was the right move to begin to pull out of Iraq uh, and let the Iraqis stand on their own two feet. The only thing I would have asked was we probably should have kept a little bit more presence in there to bolster the Iraqi army uh, because they were still you know, struggling to, to be stable at the time. I mentioned that you served for two years at the uh, NSC at the, at the beginning of the, uh, in, in the beginning of the, that era. Uh, you, you, uh, little known fact were one of the author, you're, you're, when people have to take their shoes off at the airport, <laughs> they should all think of you because you were, uh, oh, thanks. You, were, you had to bring you that up <laughs> <laughs> and take their computers out. Um, uh, but, um, so those were some of the things, uh, that you did there, but I have a different question, which is you've been watching the events, uh, unfolding, uh, just in this last week. Right. Um, and I was wondering how you react as someone who not only served in the military but served at the NSC when you uh, read, A, what the president's conversation was 
uh, with the president of Ukraine and the imp- the imp- uh, which took place at a time when he had frozen aid, military aid that they needed. And secondly, how that material was handled at you know at the NSC, moving it to uh, a top secret uh, 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 server rather than going through normal channels. Well, as you know, the president and I aren't going to be exchanging Christmas cards. Um, yeah. But uh, but having served in the Bush White House and then having been one of Obama's uh, commanders, what I've told folks consistently is, look, I didn't agree with every decision that President Bush made nor President Obama made. Um, but I respected both of them greatly um, because they upheld the dignity of the office. And somebody was asking me the other day, well, isn't dignity in the eye of the beholder? And I said, I don't think so. I think when we think of dignity, the dignity of the office, it is about doing things that are moral, legal, and ethical. Ethical, follow the rules. Legal, follow the law. Moral, follow what you know to be right. Um, and my concern with, with President Trump is that I don't see him following any of those on a lot of his major decisions. Part of this comes back to process. And so in the Bush White House and the Obama White House, there is a very rigorous process, as you know, for getting a decision to the president. Even something as simple as a call to the president of the Ukraine, that would have been vetted. It would have started exactly, at, yeah. at you know, kind of the, as we say, the, the policy coordination uh, committee level. It would have gone to a DC. It would have gone to a PC. It would have gone to the NSC to some degree, maybe, or it would have flowed through a, a process. And then somebody would have come to President Trump and said, Mr. President, here are your talking points. Yes. And, and frankly, uh, the president of Ukraine would have had similar talking points that, that probably would have been coordinated even before the call. Yes. And so the pre- it would not have gotten the president in this awkward position of, let me ask for reciprocation for something on, on Joe Biden. Uh, that wouldn't have happened if the process was in place to inform the president. And no president, uh, you know, is the smartest man or woman when it comes to the depth of some of these policies. That is why you need a process. And because President Trump seems to have foregone the, the process, I think he finds himself in these difficult positions. He thinks his He apparently was briefed, by the way, and told, do not raise this do issue. Do not raise it, right. But if you, if you don't follow the advice of your, your counselors, well, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Uh, do you think he is in trouble? I, do I mean, think he's do, in and do you think he should be in trouble? I do think he should be in trouble. I mean, I think this is, uh, again, this is a violation of kind of the fundamentals of the office. Uh, you know, never use a foreign country to uh, affect the political outcome of, of our nation. Um, and, I, you know, you would have hoped through the process, somebody would have told him time and time again, Mr. President, you can't do this. It is against ethics, it is against the law, and it is against our you know, moral uh, position to be able to ask a fellow uh, president, head of state, to intervene on something that is clearly uh, part of our American electoral process. So, yeah, I think it is, it is completely wrong. Um, and you think the Congress is doing the right thing by pursuing an impeachment inquiry? Well, I, I, I want to see more of the facts come out. But what I will tell you is absolutely you need to hold him accountable. You need to hold anybody accountable that, that doesn't meet their responsibility that, of doing things that are moral, legal, and ethical. If you fail to do that as a public servant, you have to be held accountable. Um, you uh, had must have been watching with interest when the acting DNI uh, testified, uh, Admiral McGuire, because he is 
one one of perhaps your closest friends. Yes. Uh, in your book, you write about him being there when uh, you know right after your accident, uh, when the doctors were uh, uh, talking right. to your wife and talking to you about what had happened, and he was uh, uh, trying to. Um, handle that whole situation and, and, and help uh, interpret uh, and encourage you. Um, so that's, as, that's how close uh, he is to you. Um, what, were your, what were your thoughts when you saw him uh, right. at that committee? Yeah, I've known Joe McGuire for over 40 years. And I can tell you without question, you know, one of the finest military officers, one of the finest public servants, uh, a man of really uh, unquestionable integrity. Uh, but in a very difficult position. He'd been the DNI for all of six weeks, I think, before he goes uh, before the Congress. Uh, he was handed this uh, report, as I understand it, you know, a couple of days after he is uh, sitting in the chair. Uh, but frankly, I think he handled the tough questions exceedingly well um, in light of the fact that obviously he is there uh, to be you know, a foil for the Democrats and, and probably a bit of a foil for the Republicans as well. Um, and one, I thought his opening statement uh, was very clear, was very concise, why he went to the attorney general, why he had to talk to the White House, uh, because they were the only ones that could uh, determine whether executive privilege was in play. Um, but uh, the other part that he made very clear was he is here to, to make sure that the protection of the whistleblower, he will protect the whistleblower uh, as best he can. And I believe that particularly if that individual is a member of the intelligence community. That's his responsibility. He understands that as the leader of, of that organization that uh, he has that responsibility. He talked about the whistleblower's um, um, uh, complaint being credible uh, and that uh, we, should, we should follow through with the process. So I think he handled it magnificently. Um, you, I don't mean to ask this as a leading question, but it concerns me. Uh, because I, like you, have great reverence for these institutions of our democracy. Um, what impact has uh, all of this, the president's uh, ongoing battle with the intelligence community, um, uh, you know, with the Justice Department, the FBI, um, what, what impact does it have on morale? Yeah, I think it has a significant impact. Um, now, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but the rank and file of these uh, organizations, the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, they, they do gonna, their job. They are going to do their job, yeah. uh, irrespective of what happens in the, in the turmoil in Washington, D.C. So I think the American public can feel very, very confident that uh, our intelligence community, our law enforcement community is out there doing their job. However, having said that, um, you know, when you undermine the credibility of the intelligence community and you, you believe Vladimir Putin over the intelligence community, when you talk about the fact that the Justice Department is corrupt and that the FBI has got dirty cops in it, uh, absolutely this affects the morale of these organizations. Uh, why wouldn't it? Uh, you know, I've also been very concerned about the president's attack on, on the free press. Uh, I'm a, you're a, you're a, I'm you, a journalism you studied major. journalism, yeah. I, I, I which was. It, and, that shows up in the way you've written this book. And I, 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 make a, I made a point a couple of years ago when he first made the statement. I said, look, this is the greatest, his statement, uh, that, the, that the media was the enemy of the American people, was the greatest threat to democracy in my lifetime. And I was called on that a couple of times. People said, well, a greater threat than the Soviet Union? Absolutely. We came together to fight the Soviet Union. A greater threat than terrorism? You bet. We came together to fight terrorism. 
But by calling out the media and saying that it is a threat to the American people, then the American people begin to, to, uh, to doubt the mainstream media. And that is incredibly disruptive and destructive well, to this republic. Well, I think that's the intent, isn't it? Of I course mean, it is. The president, I think Leslie Stahl from CBS uh, reported a conversation uh, she had with him where he said, I, I want people not to trust you so that when you say bad things about me, right. they won't believe you. Right. So, again, I think this is incredibly corrosive, and, and I stand by my words that I do think it is the greatest threat to democracy in, our, in my lifetime. You had, as you, as you hinted at on the Christmas card comment, that you had a, a, a tussle uh, with the president earlier when uh, he uh, went, went after John Brennan, a, a guy both you and I both know. I used to joke he was the Homeland Security uh person at the NSC when I was in the White House. I used to tell everybody I slept well at night knowing that John never right. did. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just a, a very honorable guy. He's been very outspoken right. uh, in his criticism, and the president uh, sought to, to uh, take his the security clearance away that former directors of the CIA are, and others in high positions, including yourself, are accorded. And you asked, you asked to have yours revoked in protest. Well, uh, to your point, uh, I've known John Brennan a long time. Um, one, I take my friendships very seriously, uh, and John's a good friend. But more importantly, you know, John has worked for like eight different presidents. Uh, he is not political. Um, and as a, as a former director of CIA, the former being the operative word, he absolutely has a right as a private citizen to criticize the president or anyone else. Now, you may or may not agree with his criticisms, but he certainly has the right to do that. And for the president to threaten to take his security clearance away uh, as a little bit of a, uh, you know, of, a, of a threat to ensure that he, he stops talking, <laughs> one, bad, bad approach to take with John Brennan. Um, but two, that just that seemed like he was getting bullied. And so, no, it's, it's absolutely inappropriate. You know, the president's response to you was that you were a Hillary <laughs> Clinton fan, and, and parenthetically, he said you should have caught bin Laden faster. Right. Uh, and, I, and my comment back to him was uh, I didn't support any candidate. He also said I was an Obama fan. And I said, uh, granted, I said I am a, a fan of President Obama and President George Bush, who I, I worked for both men. And uh, as I've said many times, uh, I had great respect for both of them. Uh, so uh, the president was off the mark on that. Tell me about them as as leaders and uh, what you learned about leadership from uh, from both of them. Yeah, interestingly enough, while their while their individual personalities are different, uh, as you know from kind of sitting in the Situation Room, uh, when you sit in the Situation Room, how you deal with the the principles in the Situation Room, I think, tells a lot about the president. And in both cases, while they different personalities, uh, you know, President Obama, as you know, a little bit more reserved and, mm -hmm. and, and thoughtful on things. Uh, President Bush, I think, had a little bit of the Texas swagger that was good, uh, very gregarious, very outgoing. But in the Situation Room, both men uh, wanted input from their staff. They wanted to have a serious dialogue. They wanted to learn from the people that understood uh, the topics uh, uh, deeply. And they were happy to have, uh, you know, different points of view. Uh, that is the only way you're going to come to a, a good decision. So I thought, interestingly enough, on their leadership style, they both recognize that there are other people in the room that are probably smarter than they are on, on issues. You need to listen to those folks. You need to allow the process to work. And then, as a president, you need to make the decisions. And in the case of both President Bush and Obama, uh, they were great decision makers. Uh, they didn't take too much counsel of their fears when it came to hard decisions. 
and I give them both credit. Again, whether you agree with their politics or their approaches, they were doing what they thought was right for the country, not right for George Bush, not right for Barack Obama, but right for the country. And it's easy to follow people like that. Yeah, you know, you 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 mentioned a really important, uh, I think, element of leadership, which is the confidence to have other people around you, to to the confidence in yourself that uh, you you you're not demeaning yourself or admitting some failure by surrounding yourself with people who may have insights or understandings that you need to know and don't have. Right. And, and both of them, again, at least in my experience, probably more experience actually with President Obama, uh, but, but a fair amount of experience with President Bush, they both relied on their staffs and they were both uh, anxious to receive input, even if it was uh, contrary to, to their personal position. You, uh, uh, two of the episodes you were involved with with, uh, with President Obama were uh, the uh, rescue of Captain Phillips, which became a major motion picture. Um, and I remember, uh, and I, you know, um, one of my memories of being in the White House was someone just telling me sort of parenthetically, they just walked into the president's office and told him that the SEALs have the pirates in sight, but the, you know, this is a fast changing thing. They could take, they think they can take the pirates out, but they might kill Captain Phillips, uh, you know, in the process, uh, should they take the shot. And you've got like 10 minutes to decide. And I thought, well, I guess this is why he gets the big bucks, right? right? That, that's, but that is the presidency. Uh, and, you know, and it's also, you, you were the, the line right. uh, officer who was supervising that, and you had to make uh, those decisions and recommendations. The second one was, um, was the uh, bin Laden raid. And um, just talk a little bit about uh, that experience and, and, and that decision uh, to go forward. Yeah, yeah, a couple things on the Bin Laden raid. You know, one, I give tremendous credit to uh, to CIA Director Leon Panetta. Uh, You're I mean, very, very effusive about yeah, him in the book, as, as, he, as you should be. As I should be, because frankly, you know, his, if you know him, which I know you do, I mean, he is incredibly gregarious. He really has no ego when it comes to getting the job done. Uh, this could have been a CIA-only mission. Uh, but uh, I think Panetta understood that, look, this is what we did for a living. We, the special operations community, brought us in early, uh, made sure we had everything we needed to be successful. And so I think this will go down, obviously, as one of the great uh, CIA uh, intelligence uh, missions in history. But also credit that to Leon Panetta and Michael Morell, uh, yes. who, who really had the courage to, great to pull, the, pull the team together. But the other piece of this is uh, the president and his national security team. I tell folks, irrespective of what side of the aisle you're on, uh, you would have been incredibly impressed with how the president and that team handled this. I was in six or seven meetings with the president from January through April, and you know, we had heated discussions, but there was never any rancor. There was never you know, not, nothing personal. It was just— Because there was never a certainty right. that, that Osama bin Laden was in there. You were going to have to ruffle the feathers of the Pakistanis— to do this mission, and and this was your task. There was no, there, it wasn't clear until you did all of your work that this was even a feasible mission. Right, uh, all the things you laid out are exactly right. We went every time we had a meeting. 
the president would turn to Leon Panetta and say, well, Leon, what do you think? Now, Panetta was was very uh, more certain, I think, than most people sitting around the table that it was bin Laden. But but he had to admit that the the, the evidence wasn't conclusive by any means. Um, and, uh, and in fact, late in the game, I think the last meeting I was in, uh, Mike Leiter, who was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, had been asked to review the intelligence, and NCTC came back and said, look, we think the chance that it's bin Laden is anywhere between 60% and 40%. And I'm thinking to myself, 40%? Who in the world is going to authorize a mission to fly 162 miles into Pakistan to a target that is a couple of miles from their West Point, a couple of miles from an infantry battalion, a mile from a police station? And oh, by the way, the PACs have nuclear weapons. Um, I flew the next day to, to Afghanistan, got a call on Friday night from Leon Panetta, and he said, the president's approved the mission. And I remember thinking, wow, that is an incredibly gutsy decision. Uh, because the president knew all the risks. I mean, the risks that, you know, we wondered whether or not the compound could be loaded with explosives. Uh, we'd seen this before in Iraq, where you come into a compound and the walls are booby-trapped, everything's booby-trapped. Was bin Laden wearing a suicide vest? The chance that the guys were going to get in there and get out unscathed was was highly unlikely. We didn't know whether it was bin Laden. The president called me the next day, and uh, I remember saying, well, Bill, what do you think? And I said, well, Mr. President, if he's there, we'll get him. If not, we'll come home. The downside of the will-come-home scenario, as I had briefed the president, was if the SEALs arrive on target and somebody comes out and they got a gun, it's not going to go well for that guy. And if they make their way to the first floor and they kill somebody else, they make their way to the second floor and they kill somebody else, and they make their way to the third floor, and it turns out the guy we thought was bin Laden is nothing but a tall Pakistani, this will be a disaster of epic proportion. And the president still made the decision to go. Yeah. And again, one of the boldest no, decisions I mean, in modern you, times. You remember, as I do, uh, what happened to President Carter. Exactly right. Uh, when he tried to rescue the uh, hostages in Iran. And uh, it was a disaster. And that probably sealed his uh, fate. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that's what a lot of people in that situation room were thinking. But in that nobody famous mentioned picture. It, nobody ever mentioned it in the sitting room. Again, we were thinking it, I'm sure. And my guess is somewhere you know, outside the situation room, somebody had a conversation with the president. But that politics and the future of the president of right. the United States never came up in any of the discussions in the sit-room. But the, the moment that it really must have crystallized in people's head was when they watched that helicopter go down in, uh, during the mission. Right. You had, in your book, you talk about all the contingencies that you had to plan for, and it was handled. But in that moment, and that's the picture— Right. That has become iconic of the president and his national security team in a small room in the in the um, in the sit room, and in that that moment you can imagine what everybody's <laughs> thoughts were. But it was a it was a gutsy call, very very gutsy. And uh, and you're right when the helicopter went down. Uh, you know we had Plan B and Plan C and Plan D, and uh, and of course I knew immediately because I'm on the headphones with the guys on the ground and watching the action unfold that. Uh, that the boys were all right, uh, banged up a little bit, uh, but you know they'd been banged up before. These these were all guys that had spent a lot of time in combat. They were going to get the job done. You uh, you served a, a term as the uh, chancellor of the University of Texas system, um, three years, I believe. Yeah, three what what's in the future for you? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, I'm enjoying. I hate to say it's retirement. I seem to be, uh, I'm on the road four or five days a week, uh, <laughs> but uh, at least it's at my own pace to some degree. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time as, as chancellor. You know, it's uh, 230,000 kids and uh, 100,000 employees, and, and you, you've got, again, it, it is a, a noble mission to educate the, the young men and women of Texas. 
And so when I made the transition from the military to being the chancellor, uh, I would tell you it was kind of a seamless transition. I'm often asked, well, you can you know, go from the military to higher education and healthcare. Um, it was great. I loved the students. I loved the faculty. Um, you know, it, was a, it was a wonderful three and a half years. Do you see yourself in public service again? Yeah, if if the situation was right, absolutely. I'd uh, I don't particularly care for politics, but I do like policy. Um, and if the right administration was in place and uh, and I was uh, offered a position that would be helpful to the country, uh, I would definitely consider it. You must know Jim Mattis. I do. Very what was well. your what what is your impression of his? Uh... Well, uh, you know, again, Jim, uh, one of the kind of the, the iconic figures of uh, the last forty years in the. In the military, a great leader. I, I served with Jim a number of times. We were next door neighbors for many years. Uh, truly, one of the great generals in the history of the Marine Corps. Uh, and you know, you saw that uh, he came into the service in the country uh, as Secretary of Defense, trying to do the right thing, which I think uh, can be said for both him and John Kelly and H.R. McMaster and the others that came in, knowing that they have an obligation to serve when the President of the United States asks. But they also understand that uh, when you get to the point where you can no longer, uh, in good conscience, follow the commander-in-chief, then you have an obligation to, to step aside. And I think Jim did that uh, for what he thought were, was valid reasons, which I think were valid reasons. And, uh, and I, I know he'll, he'll continue to do well and serve the country in, in some other fashion. I would love to explore so much more with you, but uh, I have to say goodbye, but not without urging people to... Uh to pick up your book, uh, Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations. It really is hard to put down once you start reading it. Your, your, your background in writing is, is clear. It's just a crack, crackling narrative and, uh, and an extraordinary story. Admiral McRaven, it's, it's great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.